0: It is Tuesday, May the 5th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining the social, economic, and geostrategic concerns in a world ever-changing due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I am Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. For those of you tuning in for the first time, this is a conversation in which three Hoover Senior Fellows, three Goodfellows, as we like to call them, offer their unique insights into what lies ahead in these uncertain times. Let's meet the Goodfellows, beginning with John Cochran, an economist and the Hoover Institution's Rose Marie and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. John's also the author of the Grumpy Economist blog, which you should definitely bookmark as a daily read. John, how are things in your world today?
1: Yeah, I'm doing great, thanks.
0: Very good. Uh, we're also graced by the presence of Neil Ferguson, the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow and a renowned historian and author. He's also the host of Neil Ferguson's Net World, a three-part PBS series on the intersection of social media, technology, and the spread of cultural movements. Neil, I'd like to wish you a happy single de Mayo.
2: Um, I'm not sure they have that in Montana, but uh, I'll, I'll accept the, uh, the the greetings and, uh, yeah, send mine back to you. Happy 5th of May.
0: Thank you, and I trust you're stocked on tequila for this afternoon.
2: I don't think they have that in Montana either, but there are certainly uh, hard forms of hard liquor on the premises. Let me just say that.
0: Very good. Our third good fellow, last but certainly not least, and more of a Scotch man than a tequila drinker, I think, is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fawada Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow, and prior to coming west to Hoover, he was the National Security Advisor to the President of the United States. General McMaster is also the author of Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. Its release date is September 15th, I believe, but you can pre-order it right now on Amazon. Hello, H.R.
3: Hello, Bill. Good to be with you. Good to be with you, John and Neil.
0: And just for the record, every book that you sell on Amazon, the three of us get a cut of it, right? (laughs) I hear silence. I guess your audio went dead. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Gentlemen, let's talk today. The topic I want to bring up today is war, more specifically the use of the term war. Uh, If you follow American politics and policy, this is a very familiar word. The 1960s saw a war on poverty. The 1970s brought us a war on inflation. The 1980s a war on drugs the first decade of the 21st century featured a war on terror the second decade a politically driven war on women and now this decade an introduction to a war on the coronavirus or some call it the corona war dr tom frieden is the former director of the centers for disease control he's prophesized about a quote long war ahead of us andrew cuomo the governor of new york he's called in his constituents to support what he calls the troops troops in this case being healthcare workers. Quote was also said of healthcare workers and I quote, they are the soldiers. Then we have the commander in chief, Donald Trump, who has labeled himself a wartime president. Now we have one good fellow on this broadcast who served in combat and has seen warfare in the traditional meaning of the term. I'd be very interested in what he thinks about the use of war. Another good fellow may have thoughts on what it'd mean for America to actually transition to a wartime economy as we did in the 1940s. But let's begin with the third good fellow, our resident historian. Neil Ferguson, you the author of at least two books that have the word war in it. One is War of the World, 20th Century Conflict and the Descent of the West, and the other The Pity of War, Explaining World War I. In your estimation, does war apply to pandemic?
2: Not really, uh, although, of course, the, there is uh, at least one uh, similarity. Uh, and that's uh, the, the suddenness of the, the shock that this uh, pandemic has administered to governments all around the world. I have a new paper on this subject, which is uh, going to uh, be uh, launched on the uh, Hoover History Workshop, uh, or rather Working Group, uh, seminar this week. And in it, I point out that in many ways, the, there is a resemblance between the, the way the pandemic suddenly burst upon the world and the way World War One. Uh, broke out but uh, there the resemblances end in, in the great conventional wars of the 20th century it was young men who found themselves suddenly plucked out of their normal routines and and sent off to, to fight uh, whereas in a pandemic and particularly in this Uh, pandemic uh, COVID-19. It's actually the elderly, disproportionately male elderly, but the elderly who are most at risk. And the young who really aren't so much at risk from the virus find themselves rather in the opposite situation from their predecessors in 1914 or 1939, being told to just sit and and cool their heels at home, not to go to work, not to go out. So it's very different in that respect. Um, John, I'm I'm sure, will will point out that there is a strong resemblance in the way in which the pandemic's uh, impacting public finances. We're seeing this blowout of the deficit and expansion of central bank balance sheets. Traditionally, those were associated with wars rather than with peacetime. So I think there are resemblances. I think I kind of recoil a bit when uh, prime ministers and presidents try to cast themselves in some sense as the heirs of uh, of. Uh, let's say, Churchill and, and Franklin Roosevelt, because this does seem like a profoundly different challenge. We're, we're up against germs, not Germans, and it's just different. Uh, and I think the psychological, this is the last point I'll make, psychological impact different. Uh, there's something real about the way that a nation unites, at least at the beginning of a war, you can't really say that we've seen that uh, in the wake of this uh, pandemic. So yeah, I, I think this is one of these uh, analogies that's that's useful more because it forces us to focus on the differences between the two kinds of disaster.
0: Okay. John Cochran, let's talk about a wartime economy.
1: Yeah. Um, so this isn't a war. This is <clears throat> a public health crisis. And <clears throat> governments face, uh, I'd say, three kinds of huge big sudden challenges wars civil wars and public health crises they're different they have some similarities uh there are times of of big national crisis where governments do big things but they are different i I would start with um uh one of the analogies to world war ii is is the command economy um how did we produce liberty ships the invocation of the uh, defense production act Um, And we are now seeing the government taking over, uh, you know, our economy can't seem to produce 50 cent face masks. So the government's gonna take over and command their production. That's just a terrible analogy. Um, the, the, The stuff we had to buy in World War II, tanks, ships, airplanes cost a lot of GDP and took a lot of the industrial capacity. We're just trying to ramp up production on stuff that is trivial fractions of the money in the economy. And if we were simply willing to say, we'll pay 10 bucks a piece, we could get all the face masks in the world. So I think in fact, the war analogy and, and the attempt to put in price controls and haggle over 50 cents on face masks, rather than just spend what it takes, it has been, um, has been, has been bad for the task at hand, which is to organize society, uh, to help society organize itself, but does not require direct expenditure. Now, Neil mentioned the government is spending a huge amount but we're not buying tanks and ships and airplanes. We're sending money to people so that they can pay their rent. Uh, these are transfers. These are not purchases. It has the same effect of ramping up the deficit. Taxpayers will have to pay it off and we can talk about the likelihood of that happening, but it, it's a quite different feature. Uh, like war, like, uh, efforts for the government to run things. Uh, as we've mentioned before, FUBAR and snafu were acronyms invented by our grandfathers. Uh, World War II's efforts for the government to send stuff around were just as chaotic as the current ones. Uh, generals uh, had to try to get supplies as people are trying to get masks now. And there, I think the analogy is is hurting us because you know we we could much more easily produce tests and masks. Our our problems are not um, supply lines in the way. The problems are the FDA and regulations in the way. Everything you. All the things we hear of, you know, potatoes rotting in the field. Why? Well, because we didn't have properly labeled bags to send them to grocery stores instead of restaurants. Uh, it's kind of sad. Like World War II, um, private innovation is, is really a wonderful thing going on now. Um, not much less spurred by the government than World War II, but, uh, you know, the, the labs who are coming up with tests and vaccines and so forth are really going to prove, if anything, deci- decisive uh, in this in World War II. There was a huge amount of innovation. They, in you know nine months, they uh, from idea to flying, they got the P51 going. Um, but that was much more uh, government involved. And the last comment I'll make here: so, so to view that our healthcare workers as soldiers, I think is incorrect. Our healthcare workers are our healthcare workers. <laughs> they are the medics. They are picking up the damage, uh, but they are not directly fighting the virus. They are simply helping uh, people survive it once they get it uh public health should be our soldiers but we don't have much of a public health response going right now uh so we're just trying to get through it no it's not a war
0: okay hr uh two questions for you first of all how comfortable are you with dubbing civilian soldiers as john cochran just mentioned but secondly let's talk about the wartime mentality you've gone into battle and a certain mindset has to has to prevail if you're to succeed in a war how does a military mindset translate to a civilian mindset if we're going to actually talk about this being warfare against germs, not
3: Germans, as Neil said? Well, I had the privilege today actually to talk with a number of healthcare workers who are in the middle of this crisis, and and uh, and they were asking questions really about the, what we're talking about. Is is this analogous to your experience leading soldiers in in combat? And of course, it's not war. And I agree with Neil and John. But I do think that there, there are analogies to be made that are helpful. To get to your first question, Bill, on our on healthcare workers warriors, of course, they're not warriors in connection with the same warrior ethos that, that uh, my friend Christopher Coker writes about in, in a great book by that title. But there are elements of the ethos of healthcare workers that are quite analogous to the ethos of soldiers, in particular the ethos, uh, the, the the aspect of the ethos that has to do with self-sacrifice. Nobody goes into these healthcare jobs, you know, to make a lot of money or to have an easy life. They know they're gonna, they know they're gonna make sacrifices. And then also, I think a key element of the of the warrior ethos is that warriors are bound together by a covenant, a covenant among the fellow warriors, based on their expectations of each other. And they're also bound together and valued by society, based on society's expectations of them. And I think what we're seeing is our healthcare workers rise to that occasion. And so, in a sense, in a metaphorical sense, they they are warriors. Uh, although it's important to to understand understand the differences in terms of the degree to which the the you know the the metaphor of war is is useful. I think it can be useful if it's not overdone, and if it doesn't cloud understanding of what real war is. And, and of course, war is fundamentally a contest of wills, right? Carl uh, von Clausewitz, who we all love to, to quote and read, uh, the, the 19th century philosopher of war, said that winning in war really requires convincing your enemy that your enemy has been defeated. And while we can't convince uh, psychologically that this uh, uh, this, uh, this virus that has been defeated, we could defeat ourselves right, if we don't mobilize the will necessary to come together as Americans and do what's necessary to get through this this crisis together. so it is a contest of wills to a certain extent, this battle against the pandemic. Of course, we know that war is human, that war unleashes a psychological dynamic that defies any kind of prediction oftentimes and and so it's important for us, I think to recognize. the the psychological dimension of this and not panic and work together and to focus really, uh, on, on innovation, which I think is another useful analogy. Mm -hmm. You know, there's an old saying that they, the military is always ready to fight its last war. And, and Neil's a historian knows that typically the militaries who have the greatest difficulty at the outset of an, of a war are those who studied the previous war only superficially. And, and so it's important for us to really learn the lessons of, of, of this pandemic, not uh, of course I think we'll be well beyond uh, the complacency associated with how rapidly SARS faded away, but we'll have an opportunity really to understand better how to innovate uh, in the in the medical field as, as well, how to mobilize the resources necessary uh, to to, o- to overcome. But I think the the other the final aspect of of, of I think a pandemic that is that is analogous to war. Is that the future course of events? In war is impossible to predict, and progress is never linear, because again, to quote Clausewitz, war is a continuous interaction of opposites. That has it has a lot to do with really your enemy. In this case, the pandemic having a say in what does a second wave look like? How does it come back? Uh, and then, and then also that war is uncertain because of what John mentioned. Right? Is <laughs> that you know everything is hard, right? So. So uh, what Klausowitz said is war is like movement in a resistant element, uh, be, because it, you know, even the simplest things are difficult, and I think that's because of, of of the psychological dimension of war and the profoundly human dimension of war having to do with with emotion and 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 so I, I think it can help us think better about what it takes to lead uh, in a situation like this, and 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 um, and to get to your, to the second part, I mean I, I think what's most relevant is that is that you, you build confidence to overcome fear in, in, in battle. That confidence comes from your own individual confidence and in, in your ability to stand up uh, to, to, to the enemy in, in combat. But it, it really comes from confidence in your gear, your equipment, you know, whether it's a, a therapy or a vaccine or PPE or ventilators or everything we, uh, everything we need to, to, to fight this. But it really comes from confidence in your comrades, and confidence in, in in your leadership. And so, yeah, again, it's not war, uh, but I, I do think as I've gone on about this for probably too long, that, that there are uh, that there are analogies to war that are useful in helping us think about how to get through this crisis and prepare for the next one.
2: It's <inaudible> worth, sorry, can I maybe just throw in a quick thought? One of the, the striking differences between the, the great wars of the 20th century and the more recent wars Uh, that you yourself have uh, been involved with, has been that for most ordinary Americans, the wars that were waged in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, were very distant uh, events with which they had minimal contact, unless a family member happened to be in our all-volunteer force. Uh, and, and in some ways, this is one of the paradoxes about using the war analogy. We we did actually a couple of wars that most people barely noticed uh, that, right. that they read about so on TV, but... but really weren't directly impacted by, whereas the pandemic affects everybody's life. Uh, And and in that sense, it is a bit more like a a 20th century disaster. The other thing about it is, and this goes to your point, HR, about the uncertainties of war, nobody knows when it will end. Uh, People kind of want it to be over really soon, ideally just around Memorial Day. I hear that kind of uh, thing from members of uh, the administration that you served in. But that's a bit like hoping World War One would be over by Christmas 1914. Pandemics are definitely not uh, events that last just a few months. They're typically two year events, although it could be longer than that if, uh, if this virus turns out to surprise us in nasty ways. For example, uh, if it turns out to be really difficult to come up with a vaccine despite all the creativity that's going into research on that subject. So I think it's that uncertainty about time frame that, that really does remind me of war. If you read diaries of people who were mixed up in World War I and World War Two, they had no idea when the damn thing was going to end and when they were going to get their lives back to normal. And I think we have that sense at the moment. When exactly do we get back to normal? And, and will we ever get back to normal? Could it be that the changes are, are going to be as profound in our lives as the changes wrought by the world wars. That's the thought that I've been plagued by this week.
1: If I may add too, in a sense, it's more like the home front of World War II. The challenge is to organize the the victory gardens and the scrap drives and the other stuff that that was going on in World War II. Very much like a war, and I think here's where um, we really could learn some lessons. Uh, all the military history I've read is a history of chaos and improvisation. You try something, it doesn't work. You look, but then you learn fast and and adapt the tactics as things go on. We we try an attack here, doesn't work. Well, we'll try something there. We send our tanks over, they blow up. Whoops, they made it, they have gas tanks in them. Uh, You know, we got to fortify them against the German shells, get something else to work. A successful war involves lots and lots of mistakes but then quickly uh, learning from those mistakes, um, and that's obviously what we've seen now. You know, the, the plans and uh, the the, the that we saw in March have just been completely blown up, uh, and now our governments they're they're making it up as they go along, as every wartime government does. But the the key is to stay open. So that the new set, so that we can respond to circumstances and understand things. Certainly, the war on terror was another great example. We went in ready to fight Vietnam again, and our uh, our adversaries had something different. And it's really amazing how quickly the U.S. military adapted, thought through new strategies, new doctrines, new ways of fighting uh, this thing. Well, that's we're certainly going to have. We've already seen three or four plans fall completely apart, and more will come. The great advantage of what we have now over war is uh, is openness. In a war, you have to keep secret about what you're learning and how you're adapting your uh, tactics. Whereas uh, the great hope I see is not in the competence of our bureaucracy, but our wide open internet, which is allowing us to read um, academic articles as they're instantly posted, think about them. I have ideas of how to run this are bouncing around, filtered and filtering up far more quickly than in any previous uh, occasion like this. Uh, So that openness may be just what it takes to help us adapt because certainly the current plans are not gonna last another month.
3: (laughs) Right. Well, it's the the famous quotation from Von Mocha, the elder, right? No plan survives contact with the enemy. And I'm, I'm thinking of the, the late, great historian, Michael Howard, who sadly passed at the end of last year, who, who really made the point oftentimes that you're never going to get it right. No matter hard you think, how hard you think about the problem of future war or maybe future pandemic, you're, you're not going to be precisely right. The key is to not be so far off the mark that you can't adjust once the real dimensions and nature of that challenge are, are revealed to you and and uh and the the way a virus morphs uh, i think is kind of analogous to the way enemies you know, fight uh will fight us our forces asymmetrically right um and and uh and these these these, these uh, conflicts evolve in ways you don't really understand hugh Strawn, another another great uh military historian said that that wars oftentimes turn into a different kind of war morph into a different war uh over time and uh and so, I, I, I mean, I, I, think it, I think it does work. I mean, to, to Neil's point that, that, that you made is that how few Americans seem to be directly knowledgeable of uh, the, the experiences of our warriors in combat overseas. I, I think it's, it's a problem. I mean, I, I think that Americans don't understand well uh, the nature of the wars that are ongoing. I think it is interesting to at least point out that the president said he's a wartime president about the pandemic. Well, we were already actually at war <laughs> in Afghanistan uh, and and in the Middle East before before he made that statement. So so I think it, it is it, that is to some degree a manifestation of a misunderstanding of the nature of war and the character of the conflicts that we're in now. What is at stake and and, and why it's important uh, for us to re- remain uh, engaged against our enemies? Of course, in in the World Wars, World War World War Two in particular, every family you know had a family member. In harm's way. And so it was was quite easy for everyone to remain engaged uh, in what's happening. Uh, In terms of this idea that you can predict years in advance, you know, the course of events, I mean, I think what's extraordinary, for example, is how the wars have been waged in Iraq and Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, as President Obama announced a reinforcement of troops there, he announced the timetable for their withdrawal at the same time. So, unless you give your plan to your enemy and say, hey, please adhere to this script, you know, that, I mean, the, 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 the uh, it, it's ludicrous, I think, at times. I mean, I think if the great captains of history were to come back and look at how we've waged the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, they would be appalled. They, you
1: know, yeah. We sent troops to Europe, and, and the plan was we're going to leave these troops here until surrender. And we don't know how long that's going to be. I I know, there's thinking, right. one more military uh, analogy that I think that is very appropriate that you guys have sort of touched on. I think lesson number one in military is don't lose. Uh, survive to fight another day. Uh, take the take the battlefield setback, but don't, uh, you know, don't let them overrun you. Um, and that is in, in their sort of economic aspect of this pandemic. I'm a little worried that our plans go through September, and then whew, it's all over in September, and people will pay back all these debts, and then uh, everything will be fine in time for the election. Uh, you need a, a plan B for what happens if the enemy hits your right flank and overruns them, a way to withdraw, a way to recoup, a way to learn lessons and keep going. A- and I'm not sure if we can keep going past September, October, into the new year uh, with, uh, with this. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Gentlemen, I'd like to ask you about something that Neil sort of brushed on, and that is the idea that wars are not shared by a generation, that some people fight, other people are on the sidelines. Are we looking at perhaps the possibility of reintroducing some form of conscription in this country, a draft, if you will? I know this is enormously complicated because of exemptions and what form of service and so forth, but if you want to bring together a generation and have them share an experience, don't you need to consider, say, some form of national service or some form of a military draft?
2: Well, I think no. that's a, an idea to be uh, resisted uh, at the best of times and at the worst of times. And I, I'm pretty confident. Well, my I put it out there. Agree <laughs> with me on that. Uh, the, the, there's a reason we went for a volunteer, an all-volunteer force. And that was because mm-hmm. it was very clear that the draft had, had broken down irretrievably in, in Vietnam. I think there's a, a different question, really, and that is you know, what, what is it that we need people to do right now? Uh, and we do actually need to hire a substantial number of people to help with the challenges of testing and contact tracing. Uh, it's not like a conventional war where you're going to draft a whole lot of, uh, of untrained people, quickly put them through their paces and send them into battle. Uh, you can't train doctors that fast and you can't train nurses, but you can probably train contact tracers pretty quickly. I don't think that necessarily requires the draft, though. I think it just requires the government to say the census isn't happening. But uh, instead, we've got these jobs that we really need to have, have done well.
1: I'll, I'll emphasize, I mean, Milton Friedman was the famous advocate of, of no draft. And I think he got it right on many, many uh, ways. Draft is about we want you to do stuff, and we're not going to pay you what it takes to do it. And right now, money is not the problem. We're spending trillions and trillions of dollars and and, and yet falling apart for the lack of five cent. Face mask, yes, unemployment's a huge problem. We're paying millions of people to stay home. So we might as well pay those millions of people to go do the cleanup work that there's all sorts of low skilled work that needs to be done. You don't need to go literally with a gun to their heads and say, you guys do this. The argument for a draft that it, that it, it makes people feel wonderful about their country, we'll ask any draftee about just how that works in practice. Uh, If we are not, we are not creating a civic body in this country, and that problem lies with the public schools who don't teach anything about how this country works, not with the lack of taking people by force and making them uh, be in the army for a couple of years. So I I agree. The draft is not the answer uh on to any of these uh, any of these questions especially right now
3: oh hr maybe you I, I would just to... say you know the greatest strength obviously uh, of our military services are the the men and women uh, in in, the, in uniform they are extraordinary people they they are, they are dedicated to the mission and to each other they want to be there and they volunteered to serve their country in time of war that that represents a power that that is that is impossible to quantify in terms of, of the professionalism, the cohesiveness, the uh, the, the ethos of, of, um, of self-sacrifice, willingness to sacrifice for each other and for the country. And I think that's what makes our military so powerful today and made it so powerful since uh, since the time of the all-volunteer force coming out of a very difficult period of the post-Vietnam period, a war and the personnel policies in that war that it just about broke uh, the military services, especially the army, and so having come into the army with this great gift of a renaissance, really already underway, from leaders who had seen the pre-Vietnam army and helped put in place uh, the, the professional force we have today, I, I don't think we can give that up in terms of combat effectiveness. Uh, and it's hard, you know, it, it's hard to have people uh, to, to to bring people into the military and build cohesive, effective teams. Uh, if, if they don't want to be there and want to be with each other, the the um, I do believe though that 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 service uh, national service is, is important because I think what that does is it really helps create a common identity among Americans and also it, it fosters an, an ethos among all of our citizens that they can make a difference in real people's lives uh, and they can and 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 it also it also um, it, it incorporates I think uh, uh, inculcates across our society a willingness to serve broadly there's just recently completed a national commission on, on, on national service, a a commission on national service. I think their findings are pretty solid. I think that's, that's, that's that's an opportunity Uh, programs for, you know, for, for serving uh, underserved communities uh, I think is immensely important programs like, you know, like teach for America, other, other programs, um, I'm working now with, a, with an organization called the U.S. Civilian Corps, which is meant to do something very much like what Neil and John are, are talking about, is to identify where are the needs uh, it, once a crisis begins, what people with what sorts of skill sets need to be mobilized and moved to that area of crisis, and can we identify those people in advance uh, and organize them, you know, in the appropriate in the appropriate database and so forth, um, and then work on some of the other barriers that prevent people from being able to volunteer quickly. Some, for example, the licensure uh, requirements across states uh, for nurses and doctors and, and other healthcare workers. So there's some very good work going on uh, in that in that area, and uh, and I think I mentioned on a previous episode, I'm I'm privileged to work with sort of a, a self-synchronizing group of, of of people who've come together to try to to try to work on this problem really in, in, in time for a second wave if it comes. Uh, but, but then also to put this kind of a system in place, uh, that that would allow us to respond to another pandemic, but, but also other natural disasters that require that kind of a rapid response beyond maybe, uh, what the, what the military can, can provide.
1: But if I may, um, let me channel my inner progressive for a minute. Uh, this, um, this, uh, Crisis they, they, is is increase. They say increasing inequality, but there's a there's a there's a split between the America who like us can quietly zoom from home, um, uh, keep the paycheck going in, and then there's the America uh, that is out there, you know, delivering food and being our hospital workers and our janitors, and they're the ones who are getting sick from this, and they're the ones who are getting hurt from this. Now. National Service, that is the same divide between the upper crust of America that disparages the military, is profoundly unpatriotic, who looks down at the whole business, you know, the the Google employees who who want uh, Google not to have any military contracts is an example of that divide. Um, national service by, by sending the same kind of patriotic Americans who now go into the military, sending them off to go, uh, do contact tracing is, is fine, but that's not where the problem is. Uh, the children of the 1% will be studying for their, uh, their graduate school exams and, and interning at the tech companies and, and doing the kinds of things that they do anyway. Uh, I don't think forcing them to go do stuff they don't want to do is going to help it. Uh, but that cultural divide is real, it's, it's what, what showed up um, in, in attitudes towards the military and, and shows up in a lot of attitudes.
2: I wonder if, since Vietnam's been mentioned, I can just jump in and say that I do sometimes wonder if this uh, crisis is having a kind of Vietnam-like impact on American society. It's now killed as many Americans as the Vietnam War did. Uh, That was a milestone we passed quite recently. I think more interestingly, it's dividing the country. It's amazing that Americans who, who, who seem capable of being polarized on any issue are polarized on whether the virus is actually dangerous enough to justify economic lockdowns. The polling on that shows a really clear partisan uh, division. Uh, And there's a growing partisan division on how we're going to have an election if the situation hasn't radically improved by the fall. Uh, I I sense that uh, one of the worrying features of the situation is that rather as during Vietnam, there is a sense, as John just said, that the burdens of this pandemic are not being equally shared. Uh, It is minority communities that are most... uh, uh, directly impacted in terms of mortality rates—that's already becoming obvious. Uh, it's not just—it's uh, not just uh, elderly males. It's targeting. There's disproportionate uh, fatality rate amongst African Americans, for example. So I, I find myself as I look at President Trump trying to position himself as a wartime president, wondering if perhaps Lyndon Johnson is the role model that unwittingly he's—he's uh, he's ended up with. Uh, this this is something that i think will become more of a problem when people are disappointed uh, to discover that it ain't all over by memorial day uh, we we have a divided america and i have a bad feeling that unlike in wartime in this pandemic the divisions are going to get even worse
1: but the uh, so the, the virus is hitting low income and minority people in the cities that serve the uh, uh, the upper crust of the tech elite it's not out there in victor hansen's fresno so the blanket lockdowns are, are really, uh, there's another, the urban versus rural, the Trump country, if you will, versus the solidly blue tech cities. Uh, the economic impact is being held, uh, really felt out in rural counties. And I, I looked up some of the uh, rural counties in California, you know, and they're, they're being told shut every business down and there is one case in the whole county. There's not long that they're going to put up with that.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Hoover is the place to do a lot of the work on, on ensuring equality of opportunity. And I think that's the way to think about it is how, what on the, on the back end of this, can we learn about equality of opportunity and to ensure that, you know, that, that, um, that, that people remain mobile in terms of being able to, uh, being able to make a better life lives for them and and their children, because they can participate uh, in the tremendous opportunity of America, you know, and, and um, of course, we have some of the best economists and political scientists here, uh, those who work in education uh, and those who work in healthcare. you know, who I think I think we can rally around this and and, and support other work and, and come up with really, I think, concrete recommendations. You know, I mean, don't let the crisis go to waste. Right. I mean, take a look at, at all of these you know, problems that, that may have been exacerbated by by the pandemic, exposed uh, in an inescapable way by the pandemic and go to work on. It.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, John mentioned uh, Milton Friedman a moment ago to Neil, just referenced the election. And uh, one curious thing about Joe Biden's candidacy is that apparently Dr. Friedman, who passed away in November 2006, is still living rent free in Joe Biden's head. Uh, Biden said the other day of Friedman, quote, Milton Friedman isn't running the show anymore, meaning that Joe Biden is going to come forward, I suppose, as a champion of a much more expansive, aggressive, regulative government two questions here, gentlemen. Number one, is Milton Friedman on the ballot this year? And the second, this is a Neil Ferguson question, is what we're seeing with Biden and the talk of a new democratic uh, new deal, is this the pendulum swinging the other way? Whereas we had nationalism in the 2016 election preceded by Brexit, are we now in store for a wave in the other direction with a more expansive government and progressivism on not just the US scale, but a global scale?
2: Well, I was going to say that, uh... It, this is an illustration of a fundamental problem that a man in his 70s has uh, when he's trying to appeal uh, to a, a quite uh, a broad swath of the electorate, including a great many young people who have never heard of Milton Friedman and must wonder who on earth he's uh, talking about. Uh, and when he references the New Deal, I suspect that there's a significant number of Millennials and Generation Z types who who really have no idea what that is either. Uh, you, you know there is progressivism out there, but but it doesn't really respond to those kinds of, of lines. It's uh, it's much more the progressivism of uh, of, of Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez that Biden has to figure out how to to channel if those if those younger voters are going to show up for him. Uh, on, on election day, so I think this is a, a good example of, of the difficulty he's going to have in in using language that that appeals to the Sanders supporters who who are pretty reluctantly going to have to uh, show up and vote for Joe Biden. No, this isn't the way to persuade them. I'd have thought. Mm-hmm.
1: I think John? it is. I think it is going to be. Uh, so so Biden's statements on this, um, you know, he he has to say not just Trump kind of screwed things up which every general in a war kind of screwed things up, if you look with with ex-post wisdom. Uh, He's got to convince people he could have done better. You know, while Trump was saying, we're going to cancel the planes from China, Biden was saying, oh, that's racist, you can't do that. That, That's not going to go down well. Uh, Biden has lately been, you know, what's his big focus lately? Well, we have to stop worrying so much about curing the virus, but really focus on the inequality aspect of it. So... Uh, it's all inequality, all all, the, all redistribution, all the time, uh, without a clear statement of even how would I have fought this virus better. That that's going to be uh, that certainly was the the what everyone was concerned about in uh, last uh, last summer. Uh, but I'm, we're going to see how much uh, the the inequality and and uh, social justice is that important in people's minds in the fall. And yeah, Milton Friedman is, I, I, he's at Verity. I mean, Joe Biden might as well campaign against Adam Smith, uh, <laughs> uh, who is just as right and just as dead. Uh, <laughs> but now, Milton I mean, Friedman was- is sadly not on the ballot. Uh, you know, where is where is the, I thought this was gonna be the libertarian resurgence. I always keep thinking it's, it's like the Chicago Cubs are gonna win another one. Um, but, uh, nobody is arguing for the wonders of free markets. Uh, um,
2: right. right I think Bill, that that's, that's where your question was going, that, that there has mm-hmm. been, and I think there will continue to be a swing to the left. Right. As I remember predicting way back when, that the lesson of history is that the populism of the right has a relatively short half-life because it's not actually terribly good at delivering, uh, what it promises that the things that are supposed to benefit workers like tariffs turn out not really to do that. And and then along comes a crisis like this and the competence of the populace is called into question. And historically, the pattern in, in the US has been, well, we tried the populism of, of the right, let's swing to progressivism. And I, I do think that that's the likely shift that could get Biden elected uh, with right. all his obvious flaws as a, as a candidate, uh, he just has to have a pulse really on November the third to be in a pretty good uh, position to win this it 's so hard for any incumbent to to win in an atmosphere of crisis like this with the economy as john and, and others have pointed out in as, as deep a hole as it 's been since the early 1930s it 's it's not right. exactly the perfect situation for an incumbent to get reelected is it
1: the, there right. is, so the, the, uh, the populism of the right uh, is organized as sort of loosely around the thoughts of one man. <laughs> Whereas the, uh, the progressivism of the left has an ideology, a very organized ideology. It has controls of all of the institutions of civic life, uh, the universities, the nonprofits, the Pulitzer Prizes, all of the rest. No. It's, it's an organized movement. It's not just whatever Trump is tweeting right now. Uh, Trumpism lasts as long as Trump lasts, and there's very little uh, either organization uh, of, of in, in the institutions of the democracy uh, or, or you know, a centuries-old ideology that uh, a century old ideology that keeps people coming. The hope on the other side, however, is that I've seen many of my liberal and progressive friends wake up to the horrendous incompetence of the machinery of government. Uh, shown in in the current crisis, and uh, do you really trust a government that has been unable to, you know, that they, you can see the regulations, the CDC, the FDA, the the product labeling falling apart? Do you really want to loosen that on the rest of the American economy? So I think right. uh, I think that the sort of concerns, many of the kind of fringe concerns, uh, are 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 not going to resonate as strongly. Uh, this time around. I, I, I learned the New York Times was planning a whole big thing on inequality. That was going to be, I talked to a Times reporter about other stuff, that was going to be it for the spring. Inequality, inequality, inequality. Well, they're not doing that anymore because <laughs> it doesn't resonate so much. So, uh, the biggest, hope that competence, up- competence, competence, competence is what we're going to be talking about.
0: Right. Now, H.R., Franklin Roosevelt first introduced the term New Deal at his convention's acceptance speech in Chicago, July 2nd, 1932, to be exact. And here's what Roosevelt said.
2: I pledge myself to a new deal for the American people. Give me your help not to win votes alone, but to win in this crusade.
0: To restore America, Toy own people. Note HR FDR used words like prophets, crusade, call to arms. This is religious, this is military.
3: Well, as, as you know, it was a period of tremendous desperation associated with the Great Depression and with, right. with war looming, you know, potentially on the on the horizon. Uh, I, I think that that really what is most important when you're facing this sort of you know, this this uh, polarization, uh, with, within our, within our society is, is education, right? Because a lot of these sort of extreme views, they don't stand up to very basic facts and very simple analysis. So I think that the work that, that we do here and, you know, the series, like for example, the policy ed series, I think, I think that's immensely important to communicate to Americans, really the facts and the sound analysis that will help them make the make the right decisions themselves in terms of who they want to lead them, really not just out of this crisis, but into a future of of opportunity for all Americans, for example. And and of mm-hmm. course, what's what's sad about a lot of the policies that are often proposed uh, in, in the midst of a crisis is what they recommend as as the remedy actually makes the problem even even worse. And uh, and as John alluded to, you know, the answer. to to, uh to to less than satisfactory centralized governmental maybe federal response to this is probably not to centralize more right it's probably to figure out a way to be more effective of the federal government shifting resources enabling a more effective enabling those who are coping with this problem set at the local level uh with additional resources and, and capabilities and and capacity but um I I think I think I think it's it's an interesting analogy you're sort of making there Bill, as to the you know is this the 1930s you know I I certainly hope not uh because because what what loomed on the horizon uh was a disastrous war uh and and great trials really for all humanity uh I think what we have to do is do everything we can uh, to emerge from this stronger and and to be able to take on again as I mentioned are the other problems that may may be, may appear to us in starker relief as a result of the of the crisis. But but I'd ask Neil to comment on, on that.
1: Can I jump in on, on this one with a quick thought? Uh, I'm glad you brought up yep. it was the New Deal because you started us with the war analogies. <clears throat> and, it, and it reminds me of, of all our many wars, the war on drugs, the war on poverty, the war on cancer. Uh, lots of presidents like to declare wars. Boy, it's great to be a leader and, and get the country going. We lost all of those. <laughs> And we lost the New Deal. Uh, Roosevelt, it was uh, exceptionally effective for getting Roosevelt reelected and centralizing power. But if you remember, it did not get us out of the Great Depression. A lot of scholarship now says it makes things a lot worse. So the temptation to declare wars and to reap the political benefits of doing it are very strong, uh, even when you end up losing the wars.
2: Mm -hmm. I wonder just how much we can really learn, though, from... um, 20th century analogies uh, it, it's I, I guess our natural frame of reference uh, uh, still even in 2020 to, to think back uh, and, and I'm always reading op-eds and uh, and research papers saying it's the 1930s all, all over again and, and it strikes me that this really reveals a lack of uh, of, of historical of breadth and depth, because really, uh, in the end, a pandemic's like a pandemic, and it, it's really more interesting to compare our experience with the experience of other societies that have suddenly encountered a new, very contagious and deadly pathogen, uh, and stop telling ourselves fairy stories about new deals and, and world wars, because probably these aren't relevant analogies. But the last book I did, *The Square and the Tower*, said it's probably more like the 17th century that this. Time of ours, a time, you know, after the printing press had created huge religious polarization and strife, after it had eroded the national sovereignties and imperial sovereignties uh, of, of Europe. I, I sense that we're really much more in a 17th century time when great empires are suddenly exposed for their weakness by. Uh, by plagues and, and small city-states that the Taiwans and the Singapores turn out to be better equipped to cope with the, the new crises of our time. So I, I hope I can conclude this discussion by urging us to have a break from 20th century analogies, and especially the 1930s, and stop comparing a pandemic to, to, to war when you've got plenty of good historical pandemics to compare it with, for heaven's sake.
1: I think that's, okay, that's a good- wonderful. We've been tearing ourselves apart since 1945. And to pretend this is the great national federal government unifying moment is exactly wrong. Uh, you're exactly right. In, in in disease times, that leads to internal strife. That always leads to finding, you know, the things we want to avoid, finding finding the, the uh, always the foreigners, always the minorities we go after. And these things get won on the local individual level, not by the grand uh, federal response that sends the tanks rolling across Germany.
0: Okay, gentlemen, let's end it on that note. Let's exit though with a very light question for the week since we've been talking about very grim topics. And that is for people out there who are hungry for content, and maybe want to watch a movie. HR, give them a good war movie to watch.
3: Well, I don't know if a war movie is a good thing to watch in the middle of a pandemic, but, but I, I'm drawn to World War I movies. First, you might begin by reading this book by my colleague Neil here at the pity of war which is a great great book on on World War 1 there's a really moving uh, documentary out called they shall not grow old and what they've done is colorized old films and the expressions on World War 1 soldiers faces and the the interspersal of these uh, of these clips of the film with interviews with veterans of course interviews that occurred years and years ago it really evokes the human dimension uh, of war and combat in, in that that most difficult of uh, conditions of war in in, in World War One, of course, 1917 is a movie that just came out uh, on World War One uh, as well. And there are some old classics that are pretty good as well. Uh, Gallipoli uh, starring Mel, Mel Gibson, I think, really shows um, how a higher command can make unfortunate decisions. Uh, again, it, it shows missed opportunities as well as just the horrors of of trench warfare in a part of of, of the of a, in a campaign that was meant to really break you know, the stalemate of the Western Front by opening a new front. But again, just recreated the conditions uh, of of the of the Western Front. And I, I like World War movies that are maybe less gory and and action oriented and more to do with leadership and and leadership lessons. You know, Paths of Glory is one of those mo- movies. Another World War One movie. In which you see sort of inept, self-serving command, but at the lower level you see courageous leaders who rise to the occasion and, and sacrifice uh, for for their fellow soldiers. So anyway, I, you know, <laughs> you know, I guess one way to get out of a, a depression in a pandemic is to watch wars about a really depressing war, World War One. <laughs> right, Neil Ferguson, what would you recommend?
2: Well, in the spirit of getting away from the twentieth century, I want to urge. People to to watch Sergei Bondarchuk's epic uh, realization of War and Peace, perhaps the greatest of all the cinematic achievements of of the Soviet Union, and an, an astonishing. Uh, cinematic achievement, not least because they had the entire Red Army as the extras for the battle scenes. And, and the reason I recommend War and Peace is not just that it's an amazing film, uh, but also because I feel as if the pandemic is having the same impact on ordinary people's lives. The, the, the war uh, that Tolstoy depicted in his great novel had on the ordinary people's lives uh, of that time. It suddenly comes from nowhere, turns everything on its head. And and it's also, I keep saying, it's not really Napoleon that's driving this. It's some vast historical force far beyond his ken. So yeah, War and Peace is my recommendation, and it'll do you good to watch a Russian-language film with subtitles.
0: John Cochran, you get the last word. I know there's so many war movies out there. Probably a lot of good economics movies too, right?
1: Unfortunately, no. I mean, Hollywood always makes <laughs> evil corporations the bad person. I mean, I mean, I like the bank run scenes in Mary Poppins and uh, and wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'll go back to you know, World War II war movies are always good uh, to watch. World War One and Two. Uh, I love Twelve O'Clock High, uh, a great profile in leadership. Um, all Quiet on the Western Front, if you want to see um, the the. Uh, the ordinary soldier, uh, Tom Hanks, D-Day, Saving Private Ryan, can't miss that one. And of course, Catch-22. <laughs> we keep <laughs> thinking how wonderful World War II was and how everything worked. Uh, remember, there was a lot of there was a lot of censorship and propaganda about how wonderful everything works. You, you want to know how screwed up uh, war planning can be? Uh, Catch-22. I have
0: two wars written down. H.R. took one of them from me, Gallipoli, which is an Australian production. I think it's the first uh, big movie from Mel Gibson. So you see a very young Mel Gibson. And it's just a tremendous film. Uh, The other uh, choice I would give you is Breaker Morant, uh, also an Australian production about the war war, an overlooked war. uh, And that's more about the politics of war than than it is actual combat. And that's just, I remember seeing a double feature of that with my father back in Washington, back when theaters were open, actually. So uh, those what I'd recommend Breaker Morant and Gallipoli. Well, gentlemen, that's it for this week's uh, installment. I look forward to doing this again a week from now. I hope you all stay safe and stay strong and take it easy on Cinco de Mayo, Neil.
3: (laughs) Thanks, Bill, John, Neil. Bye, guys. Cinco de Mayo, everyone. Okay.
0: That's it for this week's episode of Goodfellow. We'll be back again next week with uh, new topics and new conversation. On the behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, John Cochran, Neil Ferguson, HR McMaster, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, We wish you and yours the best in these complicated times. Stay safe, stay strong, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week.